Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. And in this conversation, recorded in early May of 2021, I speak with Fabian Scheidfer. Fabian's the author of this book, just came out in English, The End of the Mega Machine, A Brief History of a Failing Civilization. It was actually written uh, and published in German uh, five years ago, but it's as timely as ever. It's very insightful, and um, we had a wonderful conversation. Here you go. So, Fabian, at the beginning, I like to ask my guests to just uh, share with us, because it's quite possible that many people, maybe most people uh, that are watching this or listening to this, won't yet be familiar with your work. So help us just get you, help us to understand sort of who you are and, and what you're up to and what you're committed to in the world. Okay, my name is Fabian Scheidler. I'm a writer. I write nonfiction books. I write for theater and opera as well. And... Uh, my book, The End of the Mega Machine, A Brief History of a Failing Civilization, was uh, recently published in English and French, and previously it was published in German. And uh, it's a book that asks the question, how did we get into these eco in the deep ecological and social crisis on a planetary scale? And the answer is historic. It's uh, a narrative of 5,000 years of history. Um, the origins of the first structures of domination 5,000 years ago, and then the structures of the capitalist world system, which emerged 500 years ago. And so I, um, I ask how this system works, because I think most people do not really completely understand it, because it's rarely discussed in the media. It's not impossible to understand it. It's, uh, you can understand it, it's based on some principles, it's based on accumulation of capital, it's based on states that are very closely linked to this economic machine, and it's based on some ideological assumptions. And so um, I, I try to unfold this history because I think it's like a map. Uh, when we are, have lost our way somewhere in the woods, and uh, we don't know where we have to go. We will have a look at our maps and see, well, is this map accurate? Maybe we have the wrong map. Maybe we have an old map. We need a new map. And I think history is this. You, you get a new map, you see, oh, okay, that's the way we got here. And then if you know that, uh, you can make choices uh, of how to, to uh, choose a different direction. So that's what I try to achieve with this book. And uh, there was just a new book um, that has come out in German, which is called uh, The Stuff We Are Made Of, Rethinking Nature and Society. Yeah, wow. Uh, I, I really hope that that gets uh, translated into English because uh, it sounds like something I'd be really very interested in and interested in promoting as well. Well, the, the second question that I'd like to ask is, um, this is titled, this series that I've been doing for the last year and a half is titled Post-Doom, Regenerative Conversations Exploring Overshoot Grief, Grounding, and Gratitude. And I'm just curious, the term post-doom, does that have any meaning for you or resonance? Like what, what, what comes up from you for you when you hear uh, a, a word's language like post-doom? Well, I, I like the word post-doom because, I mean, all, we have all these doomsday scenarios 
which Hollywood has produced for decades and which are deeply rooted, by the way, in our civilization. I mean, I've written extensively in my book about the history of apocalyptic thinking, which started more than 2000 years ago. Yes. And uh, of course, we have this history of apocalyptic thinking and we have a history in this civilization of producing the apocalypse. Yes. We have produced a mass extinction, the biggest mass extinction uh, for the last 66 million years and so on. And we could really eventually destroy much of life on earth. It's the first civilization capable of this. Um, so I think we have to get post-doom in two ways. First, we have to stop this machine of destruction in some way or another. Uh, and we have to uh, think beyond the idea that either everything will go down the drain or we'll have a big bang and we're all dead, or we will continue the way we, uh, we have done things for the last uh, 500 years. I think the interesting thing is what is in between these two poles. How can we reorganize human life? How we, can we reorganize our economic institutions and our political institutions in a way that allows us to survive the transition that we will inevitably face. I mean, this civilization cannot go on like this. Exactly. A civilization that is forced to grow on a thinner planet is very simple, will not be able to continue. And the exactly. uh, natural systems that support life are already beginning to collapse. So either we, we start a process of transition and we will have crises and collapses on the way and, but we can build resilience, we can create other institutions and we can organize solidarity. Or we stay in an illusion and we will eventually have a very hard landing. What, if anything, has shifted in your own worldview since 2015, when your book was first published in German uh, and then now, and, and how do you, yeah, I'd, I'd be really curious to hear how your understanding of the present and the future because I, I imagine your understanding of how we got here is probably very similar, if not identical, but your understanding of the present and your understanding of the future now, and if you were to rewrite your book, you know, like this year or next year, what, if anything, would you change? No, I think there wouldn't be that much change. I changed the last chapter for the French edition. Yes, no, I, 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 I noticed that when I read it, yes. Yeah, which was so published almost at the same time as the English version, but um, it had to be printed much later than the English version. So I had more time and the whole COVID thing um, was a little bit more integrated. And so my um, uh, idea about our current situation is not so much different on an intellectual level, but uh, in terms of how it feels to live now is different than 2015. Yes because collapse is coming to the global north, yes, uh, yes. which we see clearly with the pandemic. And probably it's not the last pandemic. Of course, pandemics have a lot to do with uh, the way our economy and our civilization works, which has to expand forever yeah. to exist because it's based on the endless accumulation of capital. So nature has to be turned into commodities. And so forests have to vanish and oceans have to be um, uh, destroyed for the last fish and so on. And so most of the zoonoses that we know come either from wild animals or from um, 
animals which are incarcerated in some way or another to feed us. And uh, now the feeling is different because this pandemic really gives you a sense of how the beginning of collapse could look like, of course. It, it needn't be the beginning of a catastrophic collapse of humankind. But what, I, what is clear to me is that this sort of civilization, which has a certain structure, which is based on certain institutions, principles, and so on, like any other civilization is not eternal. Yes. So it will end in some way or another. It doesn't have to end with a bang. It could end in a different way, like the Roman Empire, in fact, didn't end with bang, with centuries of slow collapse, sometimes quite quick phases of collapse, and then a sort of reconstruction, and then it went on. It was a process of centuries. Normally, one sort of organization of social organization gives way to another sort of organization in this kind of processes. And these kind of processes have different phases. Uh, you have phases of seeming stability, which we had between the 2008 financial crisis and the pandemic. But uh, the crisis will come more often. So these are the other phases, crisis when history goes very quickly many decisions are made which set up mm -hmm. the possibilities for the future. And my view of, um, <laughs> if you will, collapse or transition to something else, which will certainly or almost certainly take place in the centuries, that we will have these phases of uh, apparent uh, continuity and quick changes crises. And uh, I'm not deterministic in what the outcome will be mm -hmm. in every crisis, there are choices. That's a, a property of nonlinear systems. Exactly. There are choices. And in the Corona crisis, I think the, the, the choices that we could have had towards a social and ecological transition were not made. Right. Uh, instead, the old structures were fed with billions and billions of dollars to save the aviation industry, the automotive industry, the banks, and so on. The old structures were saved. And there's some slight changes with Joe Biden, Bidenomics, it's called. I mean, it's mm -hmm. some taste of a little bit of a, a new deal, but it's not sufficient at all exactly. to face really the dimensions of the ecological crisis that we are going to see. And so we will probably get more crises, um, natural disasters, which are not natural at all. Exactly, so, uh, exactly. And so in the next crisis, there will be choices again. And so much depends on the way people are able to grasp the historic moment mm -hmm. to organize in these situations. But in order to organize, you have to understand what is going on and what the yeah. choice it could be. And of course, this leads us to all the situation in the mass media where these um, questions of transition to another system are not even mentioned. Right. Um, so um, that, that's why I'm not very optimistic as well yeah. that in a short period of time, the consciousness and the capabilities of organization will be there really to avoid uh, a world which goes way beyond two degrees. Um, 
mold. Yeah, that, and, to my mind, yeah. that's that's the real wild card. Is that you know, it's interesting. I found John Michael Greer's writings helpful. At his model of catabolic collapse, collapse, mm. partial recovery, and that sort of thing. Yeah, and sort of an adaptation of of Joseph Tainter's model um, and others. But what does seem to me to be a uniqueness where the collapse of industrial civilization or as William Catton calls it, homo colossus, how that is different. There's a number of things. One is that it's global. The other is that it's fossil fueled um, and the destruction of the biosphere, the ecosphere, everything we depend upon has also been um, seriously fossil fueled. The other is that we are depending upon really civilization and certainly electricity having eternal life for our for there not to be a dozen or two dozen or more nuclear meltdowns whether it's the spent fuel rods that are currently in swimming pools and the like or whether it's actually some kind of nuclear um uh accident or nuclear war or whatever but that that is so different than any previous collapsed civilization that i think it has to be factored in that that we could see a you know whether there are a billion humans 80 years from now or whether there are no humans 80 years from now i don't think we can know that with any certainty but in a three or four degrees celsius warmer world where there will be vast stretches of the planet that are uninhabitable and there'll be certainly at least a few nuclear meltdowns between now and then um i don't think extinction can be ruled out and I don't think it can be ruled out. That's why I, I, you know, I think that the arrogance with which Guy McPherson and some others speak about the certainty of extinction just doesn't make sense. Yeah, because no. we, we, we can't know whether there'll be 7,000 pockets of humanity and little outposts that are able to live more or less sustainably um, in those habitable areas. And so my work, my whole life is about helping people come to terms with with collapse, that, that it's not just a matter of will we collapse, we're already decades into collapse. It just, if you don't understand how civilizations contract and collapse, you're not gonna see that necessarily. And certainly if you don't understand how biospheric collapse and the, the collapse of, of what we depend upon, the living world uh, all foreshadows that. So one, helping people understand that and come to terms with it emotionally. But then ultimately, as I said before, to come to that post doom place of local action, living the best life possible, making as big a difference and being as big a blessing to others as possible and planting seeds of healthy culture, healthy religion, which to my mind has got to be some form of indigeneity, some form of native heart and mind, some form of an I thou respectful humble relationship to the living world rather than a hubris uh, exploitative relationship to the living world so that's you know so I, I i feel blessed to have so so many amazing colleagues now you included um in this work even though most of my neighbors most of my friends most of my family they don't really get collapse nor do i feel it my compelling urge to have them get it you know um but they also don't get abrupt climate change and how it's not just linear climate change. And, you know, thinking that technology and the market are going to save what technology and the market got us into in the first place. That's why I so appreciate your critique of capitalism, not just 
the last 500 years, but going back to the, to the Greeks, but market-based economies. Oh, by the way, yes, I want to get that quote from Carl uh, Polanyi. You mentioned it in an interview, uh, something along the lines of if you commodify nature, you know, you end up with a dead planet. Whatever that quote is, I want to get it because I, I took a note saying I want to, you know. Um, but yeah, uh, it, it seems to me that every market-based economy that treats primary reality, not as primary, not as if it was God or a divine thou or a, you know, a sacred being, but rather as a set of resources that can be extracted yeah. and monetized, um, yeah. you know, there's just, that's, that's a dead end. And so, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I just uh, have a new book published in German, which is called uh, The Stuff We Are Made Of, um, Rethinking Nature and Society. And it's exactly about this paradigm that nature is, an, is a dead object. Yeah. Oh, living creatures or living systems are made of dead objects, which is basically the assumption that modern science started with that 400 kind of years ago. And of course, modern science was part of the emerging capitalist system. Exactly. However, of course, modern science in the last century um, discovered that this is not the case. Um, in uh, at the core of what we call matter, there is nothing that resembles matter, they, they, it's just energy fields. Yes, it would be closer to call that consciousness or energy than matter as such. A absolutely, you can call it whatever you like. And um, Richard Feynman, uh, the, the Nobel Prize yes. uh, laureate, uh, physicist, one of the most important physicists of the 20th century, he oh, said, yeah. well, if you uh, claim to have understood quantum physics, you don't understand anything. It's, you cannot understand it. It's beyond our minds. Right. And uh, so uh, real science is beyond this mechanistic worldview and this idea that uh, the world is an object. But of course, popular science and all these people in Silicon Valley and so on, they still think that way. Absolutely. And in an even more extreme uh, way. And all these ideas that we can geoengineer us out of the crisis that we have in fact geoengineered us into. And uh, all this is part of the old mechanist yes. worldview that exactly. you are an object. And exactly. you've talked about indigenous a religion, if you call it like that, or- I say life ways. Or, yeah. Um, yeah, they, uh, they have the idea, many, it's very diverse. Uh, I've written a little bit about Western Amazonian uh, indigenous worldviews. They, it, it's not that there's an object outside which is called nature, uh, which exactly. we can be in harmony with, but it's all part of us. Exactly. Uh, and it's what the parts of the uh, ecological movement now say, we are nature defending ourselves. Exactly. Uh, it's not that we defend an environment outside there. Uh, it's, I mean, we change the, the molecules and atoms of our body every two months about. Okay. So what we do to something outside of us will be inside us yes. soon afterwards. And exactly. uh, so it's the whole idea of being um, that we are not, uh, as Descartes had it, we are the absolute mind that can control the body, which is a, a machine and can control nature. All this is nonsense. And the exactly. more the civilization tries to control nature, the more it will destroy nature. Absolutely. And ourselves. Absolutely. And uh, so 
the whole transition that we need and uh, that's so hard to achieve, of course, is uh, of course change, a deep change in our uh, economic institutions, in our political institutions, but also in the way we see the world and we see nature. And one depends on the other. I mean, if you live uh, in an office, if you work in an office uh, in Los Angeles uh, 10 hours a day, and you drive home in your car and you switch on your television set, well, it's very hard to have a different worldview. I mean, you can read about, you can exactly. read books about indigenous worldviews, but you, you cannot really grasp the thing because the way you live is really part of the machine. And if you want to get out of the machine in your head, you have to also to get out, of, you have to get out of the machine in your body as well. Amen. And in the way you live and the way you connect to other people and to other living beings. Yes. And uh, so uh, I think that's, that's very important. And I also would like to add one thing, which is the idea that um, either we will have an, a collapse and an apocalypse in some way or another, or things will stay more or less the same, which still I think most people believe. I think there's a lot of room in between these two things. I think there will be a sort of collapse or transition to something else, but um, it depends so much on how we as society and as human beings cope with the changes that we will face, how we can organize solidarity when huge chunks of land will be lost due to climate change, due to abrupt changes in, in biospheric or uh, ecological systems. And uh, the, I mean, you see that in a hurricane like Katrina or so on, it, it's so important how people organize solidarity in these moments. Yes. And we, we must get prepared to this. And if you only think, well, the world will, um, we will all die anyway. I mean, you really, um, you abandon yourself and the people, your beloved ones and other people with whom you could really form relations that could form resilience to keep you going through the crises that we are going to face. Yes. Yes, exactly. Well, I, I've got two questions. One is related to if we have dozens of examples of previous civilizations that have overshot their carrying capacity and then went through the many decades long, sometimes century or two process of, of collapse. And we don't have any examples of a civilization in collapse doing the right thing and making it a nice, easy transition to sustainability. What if it's impossible? Like what if everything that you portray it, you know, towards the end of your book in terms of the things that we would really need to do to do the right thing, what if all of that's out of our control now and we're into runaway mode? How does that feel for you? Like what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is what is your emotions with respect to the possibility that we simply don't succeed in making a smooth transition and we're, you know, in a, living in little pockets of humans surrounded in, in a very, uh, in a biosphere that's not particularly conducive to mammals larger than a small dog. Might be great for reptiles, but 
not frost mammalian types. How does that, what, what, what how have that, how have you processed that possibility? Because it seems to me there's at least a 50% chance, maybe 80% chance that that's the case. And I'm just curious how that's yeah. been for you emotionally. Yeah. At first, intellectually, I think also that the probabilities to have a smooth transition are not so great. In fact, it's not impossible, but civilizations cannot really um, change their fundamental institutions and laws. And so the question is whether we see a civilization break apart without humanity. Uh, I mean, when you see the, the, the Roman Empire, for example, the people, um, most of the people didn't die when the Roman Empire vanished. In fact, it was a liberation for all the slaves and even for a lot of peasants who didn't have to pay the huge armies and the bureaucracies and so on. Uh, so it, uh, the collapse of civilization, even the Mayan case, which um, uh, was studied by Jared Diamond, it was not that dramatic as Jared Diamond believed, you know, today. Um, so it's not that all people need to die. But of course, the situation, as you pointed out correctly, today is very different with about 1 billion small arms and about 14 thousand nuclear warheads and all these other nuclear devices and so on that's not there is no example in human history which is comparable but uh, i think the capacity of humans to imagine disaster is limited and it's limited for a reason because we can stand only a certain amount of potentially traumatic experience and even of potentially traumatic imagination exactly so i think we shouldn't uh, we should seriously deal with the possibility of collapse we should prepare ourselves in certain ways and um but at the same time we shouldn't and that's the way i try to do it as well we we shouldn't um, overwhelm our emotional system and our consciousness uh, with uh, apocalyptic visions exactly doesn't help anybody Exactly. Uh, It's good to have real world scenarios to know, for example, what could happen if global food production will go down for various reasons, Mm -hmm. climate change, uh, species, many others. Uh, And uh, but we should, as you mentioned earlier, um, spend a lot of time with people who we love and nourish ourselves. And if we do so, we can stand some amount of apocalyptic imagination without going down exactly and if we become um overwhelmed uh we uh become uh, we cannot do anything anymore and nobody will be helped so we have to sort of and i think what gautier in his book uh together with pablo savini and others wrote is about these questions as well how do we deal with all these informations and facts without uh, getting lost and going down. Yes, and, no, exactly. Uh, I, I appreciated both of the books, the, the one that they wrote in 2015 and then the more recent one. Um, yeah. I found them very, very helpful. Now, yeah. the, the, the second question that I had for you was, is there a conversation that has, that is your book that you, that you just completed, um, is it going? Is there any discussion about it being available in English? Do you have any presentations on that topic or anything that you've written on that topic? 
uh, uh, translated or in English? Because the reason I ask is that it's been um, 40 years since I lived in Berlin and my German is, is <laughs> doesn't exist uh, okay. anymore. Uh, so uh, I'm just curious. I would really love to read this more recent book. Is there any conversation about translating it? Yeah, there is some conversation. I hope it will be translated, but yet there is no um, editor who has really said we will do it. Certainly. So, uh, but I will let you know. Please do, because it, it sounds like the kind of book that I would uh, I would promote pretty highly. And I have an email list of thirty six thousand people and a fairly large following. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, uh, I think it's. Um, in the, in the new book, I really try to um, have a different look at, at science. Um, and there was, you know, a discussion in the 80s, which was very strong with people like Friedrich Capra and so on, who was a uh, quantum physicist and many others. Uh, Ilya Prigozhin, a chemist who wrote about nonlinear systems, and they really... Um, try to build a bridge between uh, modern science, which has overcome the mechanistic worldview and is way uh, be uh, in a completely different place than what normal people learn at school about how the world works. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, many of the institutions of science still reflect a very outdated understanding. Yes, yes, that's completely true. The way I learned physics at school was a uh, Still, uh, these models of um, atoms with uh, the core of the atom as like the sun and the electrons turning, spinning around it like, you know, like mm -hmm. planets. And of course, this is, this is not the way the world works. And right. still, it's repeated and repeated and repeated because uh, it really matches so closely the capitalist system, which needs resources which are separate which needs humans, which are separate. Like Polanyi pointed out that uh, not only turning nature into commodity will uh, uh, end up in a on a dead planet, but also turning people into a commodity. Exactly, exactly. Well, yeah, I found uh, that I found that quote in your book. I just didn't find the other one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I can sure check it okay. out where it is. Good. Um, yeah, so I hope it will be translated. And uh, unfortunately, I could not... Um, give any lectures uh, on the end of the mega machine in, in the states or uh, in Britain because of the pandemics but right, I hope right, exactly. one day I will, will be able to um, uh, to go a little bit on true and yeah yeah my wife actually this Thursday goes in for her second uh, COVID shot I, I've had both of mine because I'm a veteran having been stationed in Berlin um, uh, so the VA hospital, Veterans Administration Hospital, called me a couple of months ago and said, hey, would you like to come in and have your uh, uh, Pfizer vaccine shot? And I was like, wow, sure, that'd be great. You yeah, know? Yeah. So, well, I do want to ask you a couple of questions that, I, that I've asked the others in this post-Doom series, which is at really the heart of, the, of that series was people sharing their stories, their trajectory, like how was it for you growing up in terms of your understanding of progress? Because many of us, I mean, I'm 62 and I certainly had a sense of everlasting progress until I began to get an ecological environmental worldview in the late uh, 80s, then that shifted. 
But, um, you know, how was it for you growing up? What was your understanding of reality? And then how did it shift? Were, were there significant books or authors or things that happened in the world? Like what shifted for you to bring you to the worldview that you have now? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I grew up um, in a very nice top urban area in what is called the Ruhrgebiet, the rural area, which is the, used to be the main industrial hub in Germany. And um, we had a nice house and there were, uh, there was a lot of um, diversity around me in terms of it was uh, cities and uh, countryside at the same time. It was, are you, are uh, you oldest or youngest? Like where are you in the birth order? I have an older sister. She's five years older than me. And so we had all these middle-class houses like ours, but um, 200 meters uh, away there were working class um, uh, areas uh, and my best friends were from the working class uh, so I had from the beginning a feeling of transcending class boundaries and exactly. uh, so I was very, very lucky not to live in a closed bubble in a way yeah. uh, but when I was seven my family broke apart my um, mother and my father divorced uh, three years later when I was 10 my mother took me to Hamburg, which is the big city. And so I got a little um, uprooted. And this happened time after time again. Three years later, we moved to Munich, then to Berlin. So the experience of being uprooted is very, I think, deep in my biography. Um, so I can, um, I feel connected to people who are uprooted for other reasons, people who lose indigenous people who lose their home because there's an oil pipeline built or something like that. So I think this is part of it. And then I um, started to make music, to make theater, to make movies and so on. So I was very much someone who believed in culture as a way to communicate about our emotions and our worldviews. And then I became, when I studied theater, First, I studied uh, history and philosophy, but then I, I, I didn't want to become um, just a, a person who just develops his mental capacities. I wanted to be a complete person. <laughs> this is what I've been trying to do for 52 years now, uh, to have my both sides of my brain and my body integrated in what I do. And this is very difficult in this civilization because everyone expects you to get specialized. Exactly. Either you are an intellectual or you're a theater person or you're whatever. And when I, when I felt that I became an intellectual, I did something else. When I felt that I became an artist, I just did something else. And so uh, then after uh, my theater directing studies, I went to India uh, for nine months to study dance, traditional classical dance in the countryside. And the... The world I discovered there was so different from the West. Yes. There were especially a lot of Adivasi people around, which are the first people, the indigenous people of India. There are many, many different um, native people in peoples in, in India. And their culture is extremely interesting. It's completely yes. different from Hindu culture. And I got really intrigued by that and interested and studied it a little bit and so on. And at the same time, I saw how globalization and capitalizing was 
about to destroy all this. Yes. I mean, there were huge mining projects in that area where I lived and studied dance. And at the same time, the uh, cultural industry invaded um, India. Usually there were excellent musicians and dancers in the countryside for weddings and so on. And sure. then they started to introduce um, uh, generators and uh, big sound um, devices and so on. And so the musicians became um, obsolete and the whole co culture was going down the drain in a way. And so I saw from that view, from the cultural perspective, what capitalism does. And India became part of the World Trade Organization and all that. And when I came back, I started really to um, get a little deeper in the political context of all that. I, in a way, my impulse was to defend culture uh, as I understood it, which is not to produce commercial goods for a culture market, but which is really to connect people exactly. and to unfold exactly. us as human beings in all our dimensions. And so I saw that this is destroyed all over the planet. And so I became a little part of the um, anti-globalization movement after the protests in Seattle and Genoa. Uh, attack in Germany was very strong in those days. Um, and so I worked a little bit for them. and. Uh, so uh, I started to do a lot of talks and organized uh, events and so on. Uh, and then uh, in those days, we talked a lot about the neoliberal age, the last 40 years. And everyone said, well, that's the core of the problem. Of course, it was bad and it destroyed even more than before. But I felt that the core of the problem is much deeper. That it's not only neoliberalism, but it's a whole civilization. Exactly. Capitalism, and even the roots go deeper when you go into exactly. antiquity and uh, all these structures of domination exactly. on which capital depends. Uh, and so it was a journey for me in a way to, um, uh, yeah, to defend humans and being human against being reduced to just the cogwheel and the machine. And uh, my experience of uprooting and sort of, these are traumatizations, if you like. I think our history in Europe and the United States is very traumatic. And it's traumatic all over the world because colonialism really engloped uh, and really in, uh, took over the whole planet. And so we are sort of all traumatized. And in a way we need a sort of social healing process mm -hmm. and it's it's so difficult to achieve because it's not it's in our institutions which re-traumatize us all right. the time right. through the way the work is organized through the way our military acts in the world through the way that um, we destroy the planet and uh, yeah so uh, in a way i try to combine culture as a way to to organize social healing and uh, yeah that's that's my journey if you like yeah no that's great i'm curious who who are the people that you find that you're uh most closely aligned with uh mentors friends colleagues like who are the who are the scholars or the authors or uh the people that you feel uh, the, the closest resonance with yeah they they come from different places um I was uh, 
my last book was inspired by um, a lecture by Noam Chomsky, which is called The Ghost in the Machine. You know, Chomsky has so many, um, uh, so many areas of intellectual work that he works in. It's not only his political analysis, it's not only his linguistic work. No. That was really a philosophical lecture on uh, the mind-body problem. And yes, no, I'm, I'm familiar with that lecture. And in fact, I, in all of my years of undergraduate and graduate studies, I, you know, four years undergraduate and three years graduate school, uh, my favorite course was philosophy of language. Okay. Um, and my second favorite course is philosophy of science. And so I've been reading Chomsky for 40 years. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah. quite well aware of, of the breadth of his uh, of his scholarship. Yeah. So and Chomsky was also for me very influential in the way he really defines an intellectual as someone who has a lot of privileges but should use these privileges to serve people and the future of humanity and not exactly. to accumulate more privileges and so on. Um, and, but the, Ivan Illich was also important. Yes. I didn't know him personally. With Chomsky, I met uh, 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 once and we had another dis long discussion about my book and so on. Um, Ivan Illich was important uh, as a critique of civilization. Mm -hmm. his, one of his pupils was Wolfgang Sachs. I don't know if you know him. He has... Um, What's, well, who? Wolfgang Sachs. No. He's a German ecologist and he has written a very influential, or he has edited a very influential a dictionary of development, which is very okay. critical of the idea of development. And right. so, so there's a whole tradition line from Ivan Illich to Wolfgang Sachs. And uh, basically it was Wolfgang who, whose uh, lectures inspired me to really start my political work. Um, yes. uh, how do you spell course, Wolfgang's last name? Wolfgang Sachs, S-A-C-H-S. Okay, great. Yeah. And uh, then uh, in terms of analysis of the world system, Immanuel Wallerstein was very influential as well with his world systems analysis. Uh, I met him twice and we did some interviews as well. And he was an amazing person and uh, an amazing thinker because he was in a way the first one who really tried to integrate the analysis of the ideological systems, the political systems, military systems and so on. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then there were a lot of artists, of course, who inspired me. Yes. And uh, uh, the poet Hölderlin in Germany, for example, which who is one of our finest poets, who was also a critique of the uh, product of this kind of mm -hmm. uh, uh, traumatic civilization in a way that ma many influences from writers and artists as well. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I'm curious, how do you, like, are there any tools or exercises or practices um, that you've uh, found, uh, that you find helpful on a regular basis, whether it's daily, weekly, or monthly, or seasonal, but um, that, that, that supports you in staying in a mostly positive place in a pretty crazy world? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, yeah, my one of the things I do is uh, music. Um, 
I'm not a professional musician, but I sometimes compose and I do music and music really gets me into a different state of mind. It gets me into state of connectedness. Yes. Um, and so that's very important to uh, balance the analytical work mm -hmm. and uh, being outside in nature is very important as well to spend as much time as possible in nature. Um, and then, of course, we tend to um, overwhelm ourselves with the idea that we can make a difference if we publish another book, if we publish another article, uh, do another video and so on, and we can become our own mega machine, if you will. Uh, and uh, so I try to stop myself and say, okay, I do what I can, but I want to relax in a way as well. I want to uh, not to uh, become part of my own machine. And that's an exercise. Yes, uh, because, it is. Uh, of course, as you know, uh, there's so many people uh, really inviting you to things and so on, which is very beautiful. Uh, but at the same time, I have to keep a balance yeah. um, and spend as much time as I can with my daughter. Exactly. Well, I was I was going to mention that uh, parenting an eight year old is is a spiritual practice or a relational practice or an exercise, whatever you want to call it. But it's it's something that calls forth our humanity, our full relational selves uh, in a deeper way than just academic uh, pursuits. <laughs> Absolutely. And also you see what we really can achieve as humans and our limits as well, because yes. if you are able really to get uh, a child through these crazy times in a way that the personality of the child can unfold that uh, the child um, uh, ev evolves without uh, fears and trauma uh, trauma and so on that's a lot i mean and so we there's and if we we look at it from a feminist uh, perspective if you like uh, uh, most of the time, of course, women do this work, which is so important. And it's most of the time it's not recognized. Well, they take care of the children and the men do the important stuff. But taking care of children in a way that the children don't become traumatized and that they will not re-traumatize others, that they will be able to create a different society. I mean, that's the most important and the most difficult work we can do. It's much more difficult than writing books. Well, Fabian, this has absolutely been fabulous. And uh, I just find myself so appreciative of the work that you've been doing. And uh, I'm quite interested in reading this, this new book, if it comes out in English. Um, anything that you'd like to say to bring this conversation to a close? Yes, I, I think that we should uh, really see the current crisis that we are facing in a way, as a lost opportunity, you will, because we haven't changed institutions, but we should learn from it. Like uh, from the financial crisis in 2008, I think we should get prepared that we will see more crises of this type, financial crises, pandemics, ecological crises. And the way, we, what we can do if we restart normality in the next year, maybe, is to organize ourselves and to prepare for the next crisis because in times of crises, decisions are made very quickly. And if people 
are able to connect, to share solidarity, and to have ideas for transitions for economical, political, and so on transitions, then we can make a difference in this crisis. For example, we can put the money that is now put to save Boeing and uh, Wall Street, we can put it into a decentralized ecological transition. Uh, and uh, so I think my idea is that we shouldn't get hopeless uh, after this crisis, but to look into the future and see that we will have more crisis, but we can do better in the next crisis to take it as an opportunity for profound change, which we really desperately need. Yes, yes. That's great. Well, Fabian, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to have this conversation. Uh, blessings on uh, your relationship to your daughter. And I uh, hope this new book does really well in Germany so that it will, uh, uh, it will be, uh, that editors will step forward enthusiastically to translate it. Uh, yeah, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. And I hope we stay in touch and maybe we will have an opportunity to do another talk with Gautier another time or... I would, I would welcome that. And, and in terms of maps of reality, I just do want to reiterate that I found this to be the single most important book I've ever read in my life, William yeah. Patton's Overshoot. So I, yeah. I, 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 I highly recommend it. It's on my list. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com. <laughs>